This is Limit Up, the show where we explore markets, strategies, and trading psychology so that you can take your trading to the next level. Hello, traders, and welcome to the Limit Up podcast presented by Top Step Trader. I am your one host, Jack Pelzer, and I'm joined today by not Dan Hodgman, but by JD. What's up, JD? Hey, Jack. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, we got you uh, like one of those call-in shows. <laughs> I like the sounds of good effect. So Dan has uh, gone off to the middle of nowhere for like a week. He's off the grid. So we had JD come in, so I had someone to bounce this intro off of. So thanks, JD. You got it. Yeah, so today uh, we have an amazing interview. One of the most interesting guests we've had on the show. We were joined by Troy Prince, who's the founder of Wall Street Bound, which is an incredible uh, organization that promotes diversity and finding people from different backgrounds and giving them the connection need and teaching them how to trade so that they can get jobs on Wall Street or in finance. Uh, Troy himself is from the Bronx, but then went on and traveled the world. Um, He stopped Jack Welch on the street. He's an interesting guy. So, uh, JD, we'll get to that interview, but at first, I thought that we might talk for a few seconds about the uh, market conditions over the last week, especially in equities. We're finally starting to see, well, of course, stocks are still going up because God forbid they go down even two days in a row. But we are starting to see a little bit of rotation from the momentum growth stocks to value over the last couple of days after overperforming for what seemed like weeks in a row, the NASDAQ did not go up as much as the S&P 500 and Dow over the last couple of days. So it will be interesting to see if this is something that continues. And also, I think that it will be the big sign of the economy really coming back if we start to see uh, bigger gains in the small caps and the smaller stocks in the S&P 500 versus just the FANG stocks or Tesla, everyone's favorite stock. What do you think about that, JD? I agree with that 100%. Just looking at it this morning, it's Wednesday, July 15th, by the way, the S&P gapped open higher, uh, an impressive gap open higher, and NASDAQ is uh, is back to unchanged after being up a couple hundred points. Like you said, it's, it's an impressive turnaround, and I think it's something that we'll continue to see for a couple of days at least. Well, of course, some of this is on the news of uh, Moderna. I can pronounce any of the uh, pharmaceutical companies, but I think it's Moderna. I never say them out loud until I'm on the podcast, and then I sound like a dunce. I swear at this point, with all these vaccine pumps, we're going to sell off hard on the day they release a vaccine. <laughs> they keep talking about the speed of these trials, and I think you're absolutely right. Uh, who else? I pronounce Gilead Sciences, Gilead. I, I, I'm not I did that too. Dan called me out on it. I mean, <laughs> when do you ever say those things out loud? Never. Um, of course, we hope that they get right to it. I mean, we desperately want the vaccine, but it is going to be a little bit more of a process. And it is interesting how these vaccine pumps just happen. A lot of times yeah, they really morning. sped through phase one on testing. We'll see, we'll see how they really react during phase two and phase three. So... Well, we wish them the best of luck getting that vaccine. And I think from a trading standpoint, we're almost getting back to the highs we saw a few months ago. Uh, Obviously, the NASDAQ's already there. I think it's important to be very careful. There's been some 
choppy trading, even when the market's been up a little bit, there's been these huge swings back and forth. There's a lot of volatility to make money off of out there, but there's also a lot of chance to get killed for being stubborn. So I would recommend that everybody kind of reevaluate how much stock you're putting into your own biases and beliefs. Uh, there's no point in being a perma bull or perma bear, I think, when you're a day trader. I think you have to take what's kind of given to you. What do you think, JD? You're a little bit of a perma bull. I agree. Bull. As far as you, you could you could trade both sides on the S&P. The last two weeks, it's been kind of an up-a-day, down-a-day scenario. NASDAQ is definitely your trend market. Uh, it doesn't pay to fight the trend, but we're seeing a bit of a turnaround, so start readjusting for sure. Yeah, stay safe. Watch those consolidation areas. In the meantime, I think uh, we're going to kick it over to the interview. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy uh, today's limit-up interview with the unbelievable, incomparable Troy Prince from Wall Street Bound. We'll catch you after the break. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us in the Limit Up studio, where Dan is actually in the studio. I'm in the studio. It's a yeah. weird feeling. I bet. But uh, more importantly, we're joined from New York today by a 20-year trading veteran and the founder and CEO of Wall Street Bound, Mr. Troy Prince. Troy, how you doing? I'm well. I'm well. Thanks for having me. How are you guys today? I'm great. No traffic coming into the city. Life was easy. Uh, you know, can't complain over here. Yeah, I had a uh, day off yesterday because I got back from a camping trip where it got rained on for, you know, 12 hours or something like that. So <laughs> it's great to be dry and in here. So, um, Troy, you have a super interesting background. So I thought we would just kick things off by maybe uh, letting you talk us through a little bit of how you came to get into finance and trading and uh, kind of the journey has brought you on to what you're doing now. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, so I was uh, raised in the Bronx. I'm Caribbean descendant, and I had the good fortune at about the age of 17, seven, 17 or 18, 17, I think it was. You know, I, I say sometimes I, I wish it was an, a you know, really interesting story of me discovering on my own deep dive fundamental analysis and doing, you know, <laughs> regression analysis by age 17, but it was not. Um, social studies class, beginning of the year, uh, whoever picks the stock that performs the best at the end of the year gets five extra points on your final grade. Mm -hmm. I don't recall really doing much research. I'm pretty sure it was Johnny John. And lo and behold, I was the winner. And I just remember thinking, that's a nice feeling. What 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 is this thing about? And lo and behold, it was around the same time where the book written by Jack Schwager, Mark of Rizzards came out. And once I read that, I literally was like, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. Called Jack Schwager in his office. He was still an analyst at Prudential in those days. And I was just like, thank you, thank you, thank you. And by, let's say by 18, I was cold calling at Shearson. By 19, I was at Salmonella. So I just knew what I wanted to do after that introduction and reading that book. Oh, that's very cool. Good book. Oh, man. Classic. I think we've all dived into that one at some point right in on. our trading world or of trading course. careers. Must read, must read for sure. Yeah, that book's been a big catalyst um, for a lot of people that we've seen in our program and otherwise who've gotten into the trading. It's just those stories are amazing. And the people out there, if you haven't uh, checked out Market Wizards, it's definitely worth your time, especially if you're interested in trading. So that must have been a cool place to be. So this is probably uh late 80s early 90s uh, over at Solomon Brothers exactly and you know it was good for me to be coming from New York City um 
you know, ironically, we'll get to it, I'm, I'm sure, at some point later in the chat, but it's it's weird, you know. Where I grew up is exactly 11.5 miles from the New York Stock Exchange. And this idea of growing up in literally, not literally, the poorest congressional district in America, uh, where we have this, the greatest wealth generating invention or mechanism that the world has ever known is just like the strangest thing ever. Like humans jog that in an hour these days. How can these two worlds exist so close to each other, but yet be so far apart? But I was lucky to be in New York City. I went to NYU, Stern undergrad, and so I was fortunate enough to be able to work part-time around school, started in operations, and so New York City at that moment when Solomon was still like, you know, the king of the hill, large poker's days, and it was just a blessing to uh, to be here at that time. But don't tell my parents, because that was one of our major, first major fights. I wanted to go away to school. They were like, no way. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, NYU, great school. And also just a lesson for everyone out there is uh, I love how you just took the flyer at talking to uh, the author of Market Wizards. I mean, if you reach out to people, the worst that can happen is, you know, they say no or ignore you. you know, oh, come after you. Yeah, man. It's it's partly just exactly that. And I guess I tend to be fearless because you just have nothing to lose. It's, um, you know, being at Solomon Brothers in operations, uh, this was around the time where we had the bond scandal. New interim chairman, but Warren Buffett, the largest shareholder, I said to myself, I'm going to be Warren Buffett. I want to move to Tokyo. I bought my first suit, my first shiny pair of black shoes, um, town hall meeting. He becomes interim chairman. I go up to him and I say, you know, I work in operations. I want to go to Tokyo. <laughs> How can you help me? He basically blew me off. <laughs> <laughs> But he did say, talk to this guy. And I forget who it was, but I guess it was you know one of his right-hand men. But to say the least, um, I ended up getting an introduction to the CEO of Solomon Tokyo. And within two weeks of graduation, I was on a plane. So again, you know, nothing to lose. What the heck? Um, and he made it happen. I landed in Tokyo. And the only person I knew to call was the CEO of Solomon Tokyo. That's wild. It's so cool, too, because... You think about it, one of the common traits you see with really successful traders is out there is willing to take some risk. I think that's something I've heard from, you know, I'll work with some friends and I'll try and teach them trading and we'll try and show them stuff. I'm like, well, wait a second. I, I don't want to put $500 in this and lose it. Like they're afraid of that little mm. bit of risk. And when you talk to successful traders during times that they're trading really well, they're, I don't want to say they're fearless because I think think that takes away from the fact that they're thinking about risk, but they're also willing to take the risk. If you're willing to take that step and put it out there and say, I'm going to take the risk for this opportunity, whether it's trading or in your case, just elevating into where you want to be, that's such a great trait to have when you enter into the markets too. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. I am, um, you know, it's funny. It's one of these, uh, the, the horse before the cart things, you know, am I a trader because of that ability or, you know, because that ability, is that why I chose to go into trading? You know, I, I don't know. Was it because of that that I chose to go into trading or because naturally it was there? You know, so I, I totally get that. And at the end of the day, you know, it's um, a risk is perceived to some degree. Um, and again, uh, yeah, it's a good point. Good point. It just it's always been that way for me. You know, I remember meeting. um uh, Jack Welch on the street one day, and I'm like, Jack! <laughs> really, my wife looks at me like I'm crazy because she wouldn't really, you know, she was in fashion. She wouldn't recognize who he is, but to me, that's like a superstar, like Jack, 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 you know? Tell me about Five Sigmas and tell me really what it's like to, you know, like if you're walking by Jack Welch and you're in our business or where who he is, 
How do you just walk by and say, hey, that was nice. That was Jack Welch. No way. Like, holy cow, look who that was. No, I'm stopping and saying hello. Yeah. Jack Welch, like- of all people, he, he really understood the uh, power of reaching out because I believe he was the one where one of his big uh, business things is he would write 10 thank you notes every day. And it, just to random people in uh, GE who had done a good job. And once you do that over a course, you know, in a year, that's 3,600. In a decade, that's 36,000. And before you know it, at a company as large and sprawling as GE, you have that sort of personal connection to everyone there. And that's some, that's a great management story I've always heard. For sure. And he was special, man, because he was one of the guys that he was on top, but he was one, you know, do you remember there was, you know, up to a time in history, you know, Kings led from the front, you know? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. this idea of I'm on top, but at the end of the day, his message always was in his books is this idea of treat your people well. You know, you do that, things will take care of themselves as opposed to, you know, I, I'm up in the office in the corner. I make 300 times my average employee. And Jack, this idea of leading from the front was really, you know, that, that's part of his legacy of just being one of the greatest managers of, of our century. But, yeah, he's just very personable. He's like, hey, what's going on? And his voice, hey, what's going on? You know, <laughs> that voice he had. Um, but, yeah. yeah, but again, fearlessness, manage, manage risk. As you say, what's the worst that can happen? Um, and that's just what it is every day. I have this chat with my family, my wife, my eight-year-old, you know, the eight-year-old wants to see her friends have play dates, sleep over. And I'm thinking the whole time, risk versus reward. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially with kids. Yeah, I can't imagine. It's got to always be evaluating that risk and reward. Yeah, man. It's hard on them. You know, this quarantine has been tough and they want to see their friends and I get it, but literally it just kicks in. I don't know how else to say it to my wife. She hates it, but risk versus reward. Yeah. So you get off the plane in Tokyo, you talk to the, how long were you there and what kind of culture shock was that? Um, because I, I have not been to Tokyo, but I imagine it's a lot. Yeah. Um, an American black guy from the Bronx. <laughs> I was, I was going to point out it's a pretty, you know, Japan's a pretty insular culture, uh, well, I, I, or can be. For sure, man. I, you know, this, I've got stories upon stories, but I'll say the first time, um, so I visited one sophomore year before I, I moved and I literally would have people walk up to me, just want to touch my hair. I kid you not. Like literally just, they just never seen it before. <laughs> I lived in Japan in 2012, 2013. Nice. Where? And uh, I was in a town called Iwakuni. So we were about an hour south of Hiroshima. Okay. And it hasn't changed. It has <laughs> not changed whatsoever. It's such an interesting culture, interesting dynamics, everything over there. It is a true culture shock compared to what we run into, you know, downtown Chicago, New York City. It's such a culture shock when you get there, even though you're going into these big towns. Indeed. And on top of that, so I ended up actually working. So I lived in Japan a total of eight years, but actually three different stints. Um, I just kept on being pulled back or going back, I should say, because young single guy, (laughs) two and a half year stints each. So that first time I ended up working for First Boston, what's now um, Credit Suisse, of course. But during my second stint, I worked for the second largest Japanese investment bank, Daiwa Securities. And so I was one of like maybe two foreigners, everything in Japanese, everyone around me. And it's funny, I I remember uh, recently joining the firm, um, at some point taking vacation, coming back, and uh, getting some color, well, more color, I should say. Yeah. <laughs> and my skin was peeling. And they didn't know, they were like, are you okay? Like the idea of a black guy with skin peeling from a suntan, they just were, are you okay? <laughs> <laughs> I 
hilarious. I swear, a true story. <laughs> That's wild. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I talk about Japan the whole time. So what, um, at this point, what sort of work are you doing um, for, for the company? Are you, uh, when do you kind of start getting into the trading? And I think also the type of trading that I imagine you're doing is a little bit different than when we talk to retail uh, traders. Indeed. And it might be interesting to learn a little bit more about that. Okay, yeah, thanks. So it's always been institutional. Uh, I started off um, the first time, well, my first trip to uh, Japan at First Boston, I was actually middle office. I was doing the P&L for index arbitrage. So institutional, that's when that game first started and they were just making a killing for your audience. That's uh, index baskets versus the single stocks. And basically you mostly are using either the basket, the underlying equity versus the futures and just all day arbitraging based on the differences, you know, the interest rates and the basis and different things. And so uh, I was mid-office then. Uh, my first time actually on the desk was ironically in between the two stands in Japan was listed equities uh, back with Solomon. So I trained on the floor of the stock exchange. This is when, you know, Solomon was the Goldman of the day, listed equities, Mostly, um, my desk was called block trading. So we were just, you know, crossing, you know, 5 million shares of stock at a clip, you know, taking down $100 million of stock for Fidelity. So our clients are the asset managers, mutual funds, et cetera. And so with that background, having more of an institutional and equity framework, that's pretty much been the path forward. So Japan landed on Japanese equity desk, eventually started also trading Japanese convertible bonds. Um, as your audience probably knows to some degree, convertible bonds are basically equity plus an option. And even depending on how you trade, a lot of times the convert, converts, uh, convertible bonds are hedged with equity. So I'm getting the equity orders anyway. So for the most part, it's been straight equity. But subsequently in my career, I've traded probably everything that, that, that moves at some point. The Japanese markets from that time are incredibly interesting. I, I didn't do enough uh, research on it going into this to talk about it, you know, at length, but the trajectory of the Japanese stock market through the 80s and early 90s, I mean, it's still below those highs. Well, that's the story, man, because remember, I went in 92, the bubble popped in 89 when they were at their peak. And this is where, you know, Japan, uh, they bought Rockefeller Center, they bought Pebble Beach. Um, that story of at some point the land under the Emperor's Palace being worth more than all of California. <laughs> um, and you're right. They're still not back there. And people that people that bought homes, you know, a lot of that was re, uh, real estate uh, driven as well, or I guess following the markets. So if you bought a home in those times, you're still underwater. Um, but this was the go-go times in sh for sure, for sure. Yeah, there was a period of time there where the, the sort of the narrative now that we have with uh, – China's economy, where they're kind of ascending as the world power that's going to surpass the United States. There was a lot of that in the 80s with Japan because they were making huge strides in um, consumer electronics. Uh, they're, they're still pretty darn good at making autos, too. <laughs> um, but it was, you know, one of those famous bubbles. So it's always oh, yeah. an interesting time to be around. For sure, for sure. That was the famous, I think his last name, I think it was Morita-san. The CEO of Sony at the time, his famous book, "The Japan That Could Say No." Yeah, and that's you. You, you laid it out perfectly. That's exactly what the title and the spirit of the book. I mean, things have changed, obviously, but at that moment, it was 
you know, interest, interesting time to be there for sure. So where'd you go from there? Because I know you've lived all over the world, more than just Japan and United States. So yeah. where do we go from there? Vagabond. So, okay. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, so this first trip to Japan, back to New York, Solomon Brothers, Daiwa Securities, Tokyo. Um, I was 01. Uh, moved back to the States, traded prop, which is probably closer to the conversation for, for your audience. Traded prop for five years, ironically, not ironically, but the longest I've been with any firm is when I was trading prop. That's when I, I was most just love being in the seat, love waking up. I just hurry up and want to go to sleep so I can wake up and trade. Uh, my firm, we had offices in New York. I was two blocks away from uh, the towers during 9-11. Um, had a girlfriend in San Fran. We had an office, uh, so I moved to California for a bit. We had offices in Europe, so I ended up moving to Spain. So f- for that five-year period trading prop, obviously, you know, I had my laptop and Wi-Fi and off you go, uh, but all trading U.S. equities uh, throughout that whole period. So it's really wild to hear you say the longest company I've been with was at the prop firm. I know firsthand when it comes to the prop life, you bounce around a lot. And so for hearing you say that you spent that much time at one prop firm, that's pretty incredible. Well, it's, I think it's a testament to, I mean, also, this was at that time now, we're talking the internet bubble. So just the markets were nuts. And once you- Buy every dip. Yeah. Buy every dip. And once you established it with the firm and they knew you were a, a steward of their capital, you know, off you go. You don't really want to hear if there's problems. Um, at the same time, again, I guess that's a testament to that spirit of mine and just, you know, institutional gave me a lot of great fundamentals. Um, lots to learn, lots to do, to see, hear, and read. But at the end of the day, without having that institutional information flow, without having the research reports, the next the same access, you and the screens, you and your charts, you and your brain, um, it just something is there. Just and that's sort of like the real, the heart of of I think the beauty of this retail investing game is just sitting there with what you have and making a go of it. And plus, it's an course, artistry. That's right. That's what I've always looked at it is you, you create a portrait out of what you see and your P&L is going to tell you if it's a good portrait or a bad portrait. That's right. But the beautiful thing is in the end, actually, you are still only the judge if it's a good or bad portrait because it's based on what's in your brain, what's based on what you see. And there is no necessarily right or wrong per se. I mean, clearly your P&L is the ultimate arbiter. But in terms of, you know, I always joke and say at any given point, buying whatever stock, let's call it Apple. You have someone out there who's doing deep fundamental. You have someone else doing quantum You have someone who does technical only. You have someone who's looking at the stars. It goes up. They're all right. Mm-hmm. Who's, exactly. Who's right? Who's wrong? Yeah, that's very so, – so were you were you trading – what sort of products were you trading with that? Just individual stocks or spreads or – Mostly. Um, I traded NASDAQ for a bit for a while. Um, by, I, I re- recall going back to my roots for a bit, maybe the volatility just be getting too silly at some point and trading listed, but U.S. equities for the most part, um, U.S. equities listed in NASDAQ. And, you know, of course, and, and then for all of us in, in this space, just having the freedom is just, that's a price you just, you can't put a price on per se, because um, this is what that lifestyle allows you. And I guess it's what we all aspire to, to some degree. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's kind of the ultimate goal when it comes to trading. Obviously, we create this passion behind it, but it's to create the life that we want to live. Hearing you say, I had my laptop and Wi-Fi, I can go anywhere I want. I mean, that is the life that all traders want, especially nowadays that we're not ball and chain to the floor. 
you, you can be anywhere and trade how you want. You can trade your systems. I think that's the ultimate dream for every trader in the world. That's right. That's right. And the beautiful thing is I'm so proud of us as a country and it, and uh, the exchanges. I mean, you know, stock exchanges closed twice in recent history, 9-11 and during World War II. So literally there's no excuse. Like you, within quarantine um, and what, what a program, and we'll get to there later, I guess, with a program like mine in terms of bringing the access and the education. But as long as the markets are open, we can all do it. It's an amazing thing. Yeah, this might be a good segue then into obviously you um, left the full time prop world at some point to go talking about you do this so that you can do things you want to do. That's right. It sounds like you did some interesting things thereafter. Um, I don't know. Would this be at the point that you went to Vietnam or was there more in between? Uh, No, a few more firms in between. I'll I'll quickly get there. (laughs) So this was uh, Spain up to 03. Uh, continue trading prop remotely. I moved to Paris after that. Oh five, back to Tokyo again. Love the women. Sorry. <laughs> um, joined the world's largest uh, quant shop, uh, BGI Black uh, Barclays Global Investors. Mm-hmm. You know, they're probably more so known for being like probably the number one ETF creators, um, but now owned by BlackRock. Traded Japanese equities futures. FX again, but on the buy side now. So I, I was a client, actually the world's largest shop at, at, in terms of AUM at that point. So I was on the buy side. So now I'm speaking with the brokers executing trades for us because when we want to buy or sell for our portfolios, we're, you know, we're moving the markets no matter what we do. So now being on the sell side before where I was covering these accounts, now for the audience, I mean, most of them probably know, but I'm on what's called the buy side the asset managers, the mutual funds, et cetera. So that was an interesting experience. Moved back to New York, uh, brought my a Japanese wife with me, uh, traded prop again, moved to mostly international, some international ARB, locals versus ORDs, ETFs, um, then Lehman Shock. I show up one day at noon and my wife's like, what are you doing home early? I'm like, I just want to hang out with you. She's like, I don't believe it. <laughs> so to say the least, even though I was down only maybe 2% and I was a little upset by it, but you know, absolute world, it is what it is. And so I spent the last five years trading Asia, given my background for Wells Fargo, live hours in New York City, going to work at seven, 6 p.m., 7 p.m., depending on the seasonality um, and staying until four or five, five years. Vietnam on my own, angel investor, moved back last year, 48 years old then. And I'm saying, Troy, you've had this idea for 15 years, if not now, when? Um, And so I launched Wall Street Bound uh, last year with this idea of bringing these two universes together. Again, you know, for me to grow up up in the poorest congressional district in America, uh, 40 minutes away from this wealth generating machine, um, it's been something I've, I've thought about because my story is, I guess, somewhat unique but does not necessarily need to be because at the end of the day, my mantra is everyone intuitively knows talent and IQ are equally distributed. You know, talent and IQ are not limited to the Hamptons, Greenwich, Beverly Hills. And so let's just direct the focus. We're not changing anything per se because the skills that are required innately to succeed in life in the markets, we know are natural. And the mechanics, the technical things we can teach. We know that. I mean, at this day and age, you can find anything between Khan Academy and, and YouTube. But how do we make a concerted effort to bring these two pools together and let's see what magic can happen? And so that's what started last year. Yeah, that's really important. Um, yeah, I was really just fascinated to see what you're doing with that because it is a real need. 
so much of the finance industry, I think more so than like a lot of other fields, is driven by connections and who you know. And you are a very unique case in which you made your own connections and went out there and did it. But that's a big barrier to entry. And a lot of people, that's not that sort of networking isn't in their talent set, but they still might be someone that's the best trader there. And just because they don't know people or industries, most of the people I know from school that were getting internships and stuff like that from the Wall Street banks, it was because they had someone directly in their family who was there. And it's a big disadvantage for people to come from other places that don't have those connections. That's right. And, and you know, even then, I was lucky, you know, regardless of your community, your race or sex, whatever else. I, you know, I was particularly fortunate just that by 17, 18, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. You know, most people, that's not the case. So that's another layer of, well, you have discovery upon discovery. And then once you have an idea, then you just, you know, you go knocking on that door. And if, you know, as I say all the time, if you're a person who doesn't have those relationships, those connections, and you're applying for jobs from monster.com, like literally good luck. What I think so cool about this program is, Jack mentioned it. I've been around the trading industry since the day I was born. Literally, my dad left the hospital because the bonds broke and he had to get down on the floor. And uh, I had just been born. He counted all 10 fingers and toes and took off. I grew up in this. So to me, there was always this understanding. I knew what trading was. I knew what the trading floor was. I knew what buying and selling calls, options. I, I, I bred into this options world. And I actually started at it when I was like 15 or 16. And I was like, well, that's not what I'm going to do. That's not my job. I went and joined the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. what I was supposed to do, be a Marine. And here I am back doing it again. But it's that notion of around here, every person I talk to, how'd you get into trading? Oh, neighbor down the street, friends with my dad introduced me. And that's how I got into it. And I think what's so cool about Wall Street Bound is you're kind of creating that avenue of like, hey, I'm the guy that's going to tell you about this. And I'm going to be the guy, the neighbor across the street who's friends. And I'm going to introduce you to this program because that's the coolest thing about this trading world is you can have a guy from MIT with every bit of education in the world and a guy who dropped out in eighth grade and both can be as extremely successful at this as anyone. That is the beautiful thing. I cannot wait to unleash on the world just this latent talent pool. I mean, they're there. You know, these young people are as ambitious, as hungry, as hungry as anyone else. They just grow up in certain neighborhoods uh, with certain challenges and restrictions. But at the same time, you develop certain skill sets that I'm like, I can't wait to unleash on the markets because we know it's not about your GPA and this other stuff. And so it's just a matter of A, making them become more aware of this opportunity and B, having them be comfortable with that level of uncomfortability. But at the end, you know, it's a no brainer. The clay is ready to be molded and it's hungry. Just a matter of taking the lens of the camera and turning it that way. And, you know, it's um, the scalability, you know, it's New York city alone has 2 million youth between the ages of uh, 16 and 24. And so uh, it's exciting. It's exciting. And based on, you know, if not a guy like me, who, um, and clearly it doesn't happen by itself. And so there needs to be an intentional conversation and pathway to pull Wall Street, to pull financial services in and say, listen, this is to your benefit as well to help us train this, uh, this population. And to all of America, you know, we all want a more prosperous America, higher tax base, more productivity. I mean, why not? 
um, at the end of the day, these young people are as hungry as everyone else. They're just limited to, um, you know, I guess in short is you, you can't become what you don't see. And so that's my main mission. And, you know, to your point, Jack, it's more than anything else. It's that social capital, because at the end of the day, you know, we can learn anything we want on YouTube nowadays. But unless your mind is somehow poked and say, hey, take a look at this, it doesn't really happen. And then once you do have that interest, what's that bridge? What's that mechanism to uh, actually send the elevator back down? All right. I've been dying to ask you the question because it's something I've always struggled with. You're taking people that really have no exposure ever to trading in the financial markets. Where do you start? Like, where do you start with someone that is, I don't, I don't know what the right word is. If it's green, like the greenhorn, mm-hmm. you know, just never been, where do you start with that? Yeah, well, I'll say this. It's an ongoing, it's a work in progress, of course, because, you know, regardless, there's no crystal ball to, 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 uh, to breed traders. But um, I would say the mind of a trader has somewhat been modeled. So we, we know Dr. Van K. Tharp. You know, he's been doing this for years. Um, he's got his, the Tharp trader type. Um, everyone falls into 15 trader types. You know, Dr. Brett, Steenbarger. You know, so outside of the things that we know, nothing I say would be particularly different per se for this demographic. You know, the, 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 the requisite, first it's uh, the curiosity, willingness to de- make the dedication of time because most people want the quick um, no, this is hard. It takes time and it's years. So again, that speaks to that hunger, discipline, dedication. But what I say, you know, what might for this conversation be particular to this audience is, you know, number one, my look on it, as opposed to, let's say, preparing kids for interviews with Goldman would be, I'm way more interested in the behavioral factors than the cognitive. How do you think how do you solve problems? And we know in their neighborhoods, in my old neighborhood, you know, it's not a matter of, again, SAT scores, but just how do you think? How do you solve problems? And so I'm way more interested in behavioral traits um, because that's the innate stuff that you know can't necessarily be coached, certainly cannot be taught. And so in general, it's, you know, the same things. I, you know, I want kids to come hungry, uh, be ready to work, have some level of discipline, um, be teachable is a big one. Um, but at the end of the day, tapping into just the behavioral things and then that extra grit, um, I think is probably the, the secret sauce. But in, in general, you know, behavioral traits of what, what makes a successful trader no different than this community. Right. So use that behavioral traits and then you can kind of develop around that idea of, Amen. okay, we know how you problem solve. We know where we can go from here. So you're getting that baseline before you're even throwing, hey, what do you think of NASDAQ right now? No, so that's right. Get, that's okay. right. That's right. Because what I find also is not only for, I think in general in our space, especially among retail, um, I hope none of your listeners will be upset with me, but you know, everyone wants to dive in on the research, the analysis, and what I think it's overlooked much more, what gets largely overlooked are the internal factors, the psychology of trading. That's not sexy to talk about. That's not interesting. You know, you want to come up with your methodology, your systems, and, you know, you're, I'm a te- you know, I, I, I tend towards technical analysis. You want to come up with whatever you think works. You do your backtesting if you're, that's, if you're systematic. But no one really spends enough time on the internal work. And I say it all the time, unless those things are really tapped into you do all your homework, 
you take your trade journals, you put your trades on, you get shaken on 10 minutes. What was the point of all that? And so the thing is with me is making sure and it makes sense to start from that place of really getting into, okay, where, where, what's happening between the two ears. Technical analysis really is, at the end of the day, is an extension of psychology, right? There's nothing, there's no immutable truth of these lines you're drawing on a chart besides that other people believe in them. So how are people feeling at these levels? Things, you know, it, it's, the market is nothing but a discounting mechanism of everyone's emotions and feelings and projections. And psychology is the biggest part of all that. So that's, that's interesting. I think my biggest indicator I use is intuition over mm-hmm. anything. You know, you spend so much time, you've, you've done the research, you've done the studying. As soon as that gut says something to you, it's a matter of following it and going, okay, hey, it's within, my, it's within the system I've created. This works. That's right. Stick with that That's intuition. Right. I've seen data, you know, I've seen studies. There was a study done on a group of traders. I think it was in the UK. Even the amount of lighting in the room had an effect on P&L, like, you know, so these are not the things that you're thinking about when you're sitting and doing your homework and eight hours of whatever else. It's all the other stuff. You know, true story. I remember reading a book and I forget the title. Um, I forget which one. Maybe Dr. Elder. Uh, a trader has a tendency, you know, he does well the first few weeks of every month and loses his month the last week. You know, and your mind says as a trader, well, it must be, you know, the earnings, the news or the markets, the volatility not recognizing that, again, it's your mind that has a reaction to those things. This trader ends up laying on a leather sofa with, with, a, with a trading psychologist. It turns out he has issues, deep-seated subconscious issues of being more successful than his dad. Like this is not the kind of stuff that comes up in your research. I've heard that same conversation about people that grew up and they, there was a wealthy person in their life that they did not like. So they found out through psychology that they had a fear of being like that person and it forced them to screw up and have bad trades and to make mistakes because they were afraid to be like that person. Absolutely. And so if you, unless you go into this space between your ears, you know, your mind, you're almost, it's almost, um, you know, you're in a vortex because you're stuck with this idea that, no, it was just the earnings. It was just the news. It was just, you know, but so, yeah, that, that leads to this conversation of me being uh, way more interested in, in the behavioral because that's the stuff that I think you can work with that just comes naturally or not. Um, otherwise, everything else we can teach. Yeah, there's no line on the chart for those daddy issues. <laughs> um, so exactly. how do candidates or I don't know what you would call people going through this program or who are benefiting from it, how, uh, how do you find them or how do they find you? So Wall Street Bound was launched primarily initially, even though in my, in my heart it was always uh, the prop trading announcement so two programs. The first is what we call Wall Street Direct. It's a training preparing rising, soft, rising college sophomores and juniors for Wall Street summer internships. And so that we have university partners. Universities are reaching out to us constantly to put them through this pipeline to provide the direct access to the firms that want to work with firms like ours to say, hey, you know, we are interested in having more diverse population in our internship programs. Let's help with the training. Here's a program, which again is the reason why this has to be intentional. Otherwise it doesn't happen. Last month, uh, we announced a partnership with a proprietary trading firm, Maverick Trading, that focuses on uh, Forex and stock options. And so that'll be more interesting because that'll be a wider audience, a wider net reached out. Uh, we have outreach, you know, incoming inquiries, 
uh, a broader market. And I'm probably more so excited by that to the degree that, again, you know, there is nothing to say that you need to have a college degree to be a successful trader. And so that cohort will definitely probably be more wider spectrum of age and everything else. Um, I think I had a 74-year-old guy write into me. Subject title uh, of the email was, do you teach old dogs? <laughs> I mean, but that's the idea. You know, this guy could have been, I, th- I forget, he was a municipal worker. He could have been driving a bus for 50 years. And without even knowing, he might have that Paul Tudor Jones brain. Let's exactly. find it. So two programs, one with a wider wider net, but the first program strictly for college kids because, quite frankly, Wall Street only really cares about filling that pipeline for themselves. But the second program, Diverse Trader Training, connecting the education with proprietary trading firms and capital is very exciting because, you know, they don't care, the firms don't care, and I certainly don't care if we find that 74-year-old who's been driving a bus who turns out he's got it and he's crushing <laughs> it. Let's make that story every day because that's inspiring to me. So, yeah, different pipeline, mostly from incoming outreach and um, events like this, advertising, et cetera. But the first is strictly for uh, college students. Now, is this specifically, uh, is this geared mostly towards trading, um, trading, trading, or is it also for people interested in finance or Wall Street jobs, like you say, iBanking and things like that? Both, both. So the first track, Wall Street Direct, is purely um, trading is only one, you know, the vehicle that I'm most familiar with, most passionate about as the vehicle to expose these young people to the world of financial services. Um, and to the degree that, you know, listen, you know, if, if someone gets exposed and like, it turns out I hate trading, but I like the analytical part, amen, go for it. Because it's it's a wide, wide world out there. And even for the diverse trader training program, um, it's a year-long program. Students, uh, cohort members will still get the credentials that, you know, to make them viable candidates if they decide to go beyond it because not everyone will like it as a trader. Not everyone will make it as a trader. Not everyone will think they want to continue with it. But to the degree now that you have this edge, you have this credential of live P&L that I don't know what minuscule percent of your peers will have, and you'll have your first FINRA license, you'll have your CFA Institute Foundation Certificate, and you, now you have this edge on your resume of live P&L, you know, again, it's really just about creating uh, vehicles for entree and, and, and sparking the interest in financial services broadly. Yeah, and trading is an excellent way to get people into that um, industry because I, I think a lot of people that aren't familiar with how iBanking or anything like that work, they, they think everyone's trading stocks. I know if I ask, you know, my, my brother is a high school teacher and he knows what's about finance. But, you know, if I asked them what an iBanker did, he'd be like, I don't know, they trade stocks or something like that. (laughs) Well, I mean, think about it. It's true. Like, even if I was 17, 18, and I knew I wanted to be an analyst, you know, I think I've come across maybe one website. I forget the name of it. But there is a website that specifically for um, earnings estimates, and you know, it's it's collective, like crowdsourcing earnings estimates. Um, So I was just going to say, like, you know, if I'm an analyst, how else do I, you know, do I self-publish? You know, how do I say that, hey, I'm ready? But if you're interested in trading, you know, you open up a Robinhood account, tr- you know, trading is zero cost now, you know, think or swim 50 bucks and you can be trading. And so that's why it also I think it's it's a much more, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, gents? Um, accessible, smart accessible, barrier entry. You know, if I want to trade bonds, you know, how do I do that? If I want to be an analyst, I guess I could self-publish and post it on Facebook and, hey, I wrote a research report. That doesn't, <laughs> yeah. that doesn't get me there. But trading, you know, it's free now. And app, 
you know, Robin Hood has gamified it. That's probably another conversation, but you know, that's something it, it's the accessibility. So anyone out there who's uh, listening, if, uh, if they have someone that they think would be great for this program or themselves want to learn more, um, where can they find out more about Wall Street Bound? Uh, please visit us at our website. That's wallstreetbound.org. One word, wallstreetbound, as in heading towards, .org. And if I may shamelessly plug, I will say we, uh, we're a nonprofit, 51 c 3 IRS recognized. And so we, our, our work is only able to happen with the, the uh, generosity of the public. So there is certainly a donate button on the website as well. Got to get that donate button. Well, yeah, I was so happy to hear the .org. That's great what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, 51C3, yeah, I, I've had this idea for 15 years. And again, you know, when I moved back last year, I thought, if not now, when? And I've dedicated myself full-time. This is my full-time job to making this happen. And I'm excited by the prospects. I'm excited by having a platform like like yours and working with Top Step and just getting the message out because, you know, it, it's something that um, I think the world needs. And at the end of the day, again, let's just get everyone involved. If, if we're the world's largest economy fighting with one arm tied behind our backs, what happens when we really unleash the rest of these communities and people that are not really in the game? I love it. I think your passion, uh, you can hear it in every word that comes out. This has just been a true pleasure getting to sit down and listen to you and talk about this. Thank you. And I appreciate yes. you guys having me. It's amazing. It's it's really, especially now in this moment of, of, of current events, um, you know, for you guys to reach out and, uh, you know, just organically just be interested it's amazing for me so thank you thank you thanks Troy one of the most interesting guests we've had if not the most we could probably talk hours but we're reaching the end for now (laughs) thanks so much again for coming really love your vision Uh, we'll see what we can do here at Top Step to uh, connect on this and uh, yeah just thanks again man thanks for having me it's amazing thank you guys I I love it man I love it I feel like I'm like almost aching for my old seat (laughs) (laughs) well we'll find Troy's seat and uh, we'll get back to all you guys right after the uh, sound effect they play right now folks thank you for making it to the very end of the limit up podcast which is of course presented by top step trader and top step fx same company two different names two different asset classes it's a good way to do it JD, thanks for joining me. So I have something to bounce off of here. Oh, always, always glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Jack. Yeah, it's been a wild week. While we were talking between the intro and the outro, the markets came back in a little bit. Tesla's down 1.7. I said last week, uh, I made the prediction that Tesla would hit 1400 before it hit 1600. And you know what? It takes a big man to admit that I was wrong. Uh, Tesla, of <laughs> course, exploded to 1794 and then whatever the opposite of exploding is, back down to uh, 1,430 or something like that. So uh, that's a wild ride over there. Uh, It did go above 1,600, so I was wrong, but now I get to say it again. I think it'll go back to 1,400 before 1,600. So we'll see if I'm wrong again for next week. Honestly, I think anything under 1,500 might be a great buy in Tesla. I'm just throwing that out there, though. Don't listen to me. Wow, what a a lava hot take, J.D., it's like Tesla. All Tesla needs is another person believing in it at fifteen hundred dollars right now. And once again, I believe in the company, but uh, yeah, it's a tad expensive. But then again, so is everything. So um, enjoy the market, I guess. It's Thursday. That means the weekend's coming up. Hope you guys out there all stay safe and healthy. Uh, take a few days off. You know, kick back, relax. JD, what are you doing? I'm doing nothing. I'm doing this. I got the uh, in-laws coming in at two a.m. 
on, I guess, Sunday morning, Saturday night. So uh, I'm going to do nothing on Saturday, and then I'm going to do everything imaginable over the next couple of days after that. So, you know, pray for me, J.D. Get it in while you still can. <laughs> exactly. So, everybody, thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with a brand new interview. Thanks to J.D. for joining me. Namaste and trade well. The Limit Up Podcast is produced by Dante32. Futures and Forex trading contain substantial risk and is not for every investor. An investor could potentially lose all or more than their initial investment. Risk capital is money that can be lost without jeopardizing one's financial security or lifestyle. Only risk capital should be used for trading, and only those with sufficient risk capital should consider trading. Past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results.